All right, if you'll stand with me as we read from God's Word this morning. Pastor Bruce uh, will be preaching this morning um, a one-Sunday series called The Sweet Smell of Victory, and I'm not going to belabor the point as to why he has chosen this topic, um, but we're excited for all of you to be here, uh, and uh, if you're on the hunt for a church home and you read about our wonderful church here, we hope you might decide to make it your church Mahomes. <laughs> so we're going to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 16 this morning. And if you're reading out of your uh, pew Bible in front of you, you can find it on page 1147. Again, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as, uh, Lord, as we gather today in anticipation of uh, Lord, a, a temporary victory celebration today. Lord, we, uh, we are unsure of that celebration. God, as we gather today, um, Lord, as families and friends, um, Lord, it is a, a temporary kingdom we represent. Lord, as we open your word this morning, Lord, remind us of the eternal kingdom the eternal celebration that awaits us, that is sure because of the death of your son, his sacrifice on the cross. God, uh, Lord, just, uh, Lord, challenge us today uh, to be, um, Lord, to be preachers of that gospel and of that kingdom in our lives. In Christ's name, amen. Well, obviously, there are just some events in our city and culture that are so big, it consumes all of us that live here in the Kansas City area. And certainly, those events cannot be ignored even here in our church today. Such as, five years ago, when the Royals won the World Series, we were swept up into that, and rightfully so. And now, the Chiefs in the Super Bowl tonight. It's been two weeks since the Chiefs won the AFC Championship, and I must admit it is still surreal to think the Chiefs are playing in the Super Bowl tonight. To put this in perspective, the last time the Chiefs played in the Super Bowl was 50 years ago in 1970 when they beat the Minnesota Vikings 23-7 behind a dominating defense and a Super Bowl MVP quarterback by the name of Lynn Dawson. Since then... We as Chiefs fans, we have endured some pretty bad teams and some really, really good teams only to be heartbroken 
with another disappointing loss in the playoffs. But not this year. This Chiefs team has won Patrick Mahomes, an MVP quarterback who leads his team from not one, but two come-from-behind playoffs wins to get to the Super Bowl. And if he can stay healthy throughout his career, and if he can win a Super Bowl, perhaps tonight or sometime in his career, then Mahomes will be in the conversation alongside the likes of Joe Montana, Peyton Manning, Drew B. Brees, and Tom Brady as one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time. But for now, we're just excited that Mahomes plays for the Chiefs. And we're also excited that we, as fans, get to be part of what is known as Chiefs Kingdom. Now, needless to say, the challenge that I face this morning, the challenge before us today on this Super Bowl Sunday is to focus our attention on Jesus Christ and God's eternal kingdom. But that's my goal, nonetheless. I want to if I might say it this way, leverage our excitement of the Chiefs playing in the Super Bowl tonight for the glory of God by redirecting our attention for a few minutes here on the ultimate GOAT. When it comes to quarterbacks, there are debate as to who's the GOAT, that is the greatest of all time. But when it comes to the Savior of the world, there is only one GOAT. In fact, Jesus Christ, you'll notice in your notes coming up on the screen, Jesus Christ is the greatest of all time. Why? Because he won the ultimate victory. And as a result of that victory, those who know Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord are now receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. If you go to the book of Hebrews... If you've ever read that book, I encourage you to. It's a wonderful book. For that book, it's really all about Jesus Christ. And it's about how he is better or more excellent. In fact, throughout the book of Hebrews, the Greek word for translated better and more excellent actually occurs 13 different times throughout the book. And the reason for that is to establish the supremacy of Jesus Christ, to establish his superiority. In other words, we can legitimately say that Jesus is the goat. He is the greatest of all time. He's better, according to the book of Hebrews. He's better than the prophets who came before him. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses and Joshua. His sacrifice is better. He offers us a better hope. And as Kirk prayed, a more sure hope. That's why he's the greatest of all time. Because only Jesus won for us the ultimate victory. In fact, in the very first chapter of Hebrews 1, in verse 3, it says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power after making purification for sins. How? By dying on the cross and resurrecting. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is the greatest of all time. And what is the result of this victory that he won for us on the cross? Well, you go to chapter 12, and at the end of that chapter there, in verse 28, it says, therefore, let us be grateful. In other words, let us be thankful. Let us 
look toward God on high and be appreciative of the victory that we have in Christ. Why? For we are receiving, he tells us, the writer does, we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We talk about how this is, quote, chief's kingdom. We celebrate being a part of chief's kingdom. In fact, that's what it says on my shirt. In fact, many of you have something along the same lines. It says chief's kingdom. But Jesus Christ has won for us, let me tell you, the ultimate kingdom. And those who know Christ as their Lord and Savior are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That is a kingdom that can't be defeated. It's the eternal kingdom of God. And so, yes, by all means, the sweet smell of victory is what we hope to experience tonight. Every one of us hopes that here. We're going to go home this afternoon, and we're going to go to our parties, and we're going to plan to watch the game tonight. And we hope at the end of the game that there is the sweet smell of victory that we get to celebrate in. But here's the good news for us as Christ followers. There is a sweet smell of victory that we can experience now, regardless if the Chiefs win or lose tonight. Going back to what Kirk read for us, look what Paul says again in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Let me read it again. Let this, you know, soak it in. Look on these words here of, of God where it says, be, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal possession or procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one a fragrance from death to death to the other a fragrance from life to life. The Bible admits the possibility of defeat for Christ's followers, but never the necessity of it. What does Paul say here again? Look at it. He says, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Well, let me just talk a little bit about this word triumph. After all, that's what our our minds are focused on today. We hope we experience triumph of victory At one point in her history, Rome had built over 50 triumphal arches. The Romans had a custom that when a Roman general would go away to war and he would win a victory in that war, they would celebrate in the streets of Rome. And sometimes they would even build a monument in honor of him, such as an arch of triumph. If you go to Rome today, you can still see the arch of Titus which celebrates Titus' victory over Jerusalem in 71 A.D. And so they built this magnificent arch in his honor. You can see it on the screen. And even under the underside of the arch, it has a picture of the Roman soldiers carrying away the menorah out of the temple of God. Before they would build the arch, though, a herald would come and he would tell the people, Rome has won. They didn't have CNN, obviously, back then. They didn't have Fox News. They, they did not have so many things we have today, such as cell phones and social media, to proclaim victory. There needed to be a runner, a herald, someone who would shout the good news. How beautiful were his feet because he would come and he would give the good news of what? That Rome has won. There's victory. And when that herald would come and tell the people that Rome had won the victory... Then they got ready for a celebration. 
much like Kansas City did five years ago when the Royals won. 600,000 people down at Union Station. I tried to tell Jack that, listen, if the, if the Chiefs win today, it'll be bigger than that. It'll be bigger. I don't know how many people are going to go to the parade on Wednesday if they win, but it will be a big deal. And so much the same way that took place in Rome. They would get ready for a celebration. They would hang out garlands. They would decorate the city with flowers. They would build these monuments. People would line the streets and they would get ready for a parade. And the priest would take great bowls of incense and begin to burn that incense. And the whole city would be filled with this sweet smell of victory. And then the returning general who won the victory, who won at the war, would come. And he would be riding in his chariot, and that chariot would be pulled by a magnificent white horse. And the defeated general, they didn't kill him. They had a better plan. They wanted him alive because they were going to put him on display. And they would put him in the chains, and then they would chain him to the victorious general's chariot, and they would drag him along the backside of the chariot in this beautiful uniform, stripped from him, his medal stripped, his regalia gone, and there he is, he's in humiliation, this defeated general, and he's being dragged through the dust, and the people are shouting the victory, because why? Rome has won. The general went to war, and he's come back victorious. And let me tell you, for a long time, Rome won many victories. But then she began to lose. But Paul says, Paul says here to us, but thanks be to God, who in Christ, what? Always leads us in triumphal procession. And do you know who is, at, who is chained to Jesus' chariot wheels? It is none other than Satan himself. And so there's two things out of this passage here that I want us to see when it comes to this sweet smell of victory that Paul describes it. Notice, number one, that Jesus is the author of this victory. Jesus is the author of this victory. Look again what it says in verse 14. Paul makes it crystal clear. He says, but thanks be to God who in who? Who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. So Jesus is the author of this victory. And what kind of victory did Jesus win for us? Well, speaking about this same victory in a different letter in Colossians, Paul writes about it. He describes this particular victory in chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, where he says, in you, now speaking to about us, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in it. That's the victory that Jesus, the conquering general, won for you. Now put this in your mind. When, Rome, when a Roman general had won, who won? All of Rome. And in the same way, when Jesus won, you won in Christ. Specifically, when Jesus won, he delivered you from the bondage of three things Paul describes right here. In fact, the victory Christ won for you means, number one, notice this in your notes, that Jesus delivered you from the bondage of death itself. 
Now, here is the way Paul describes it in verse 13 of Colossians 2. He says, and you. So he's talking about us before Christ. Before our faith in Christ. We who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. And notice what God did for us in Christ. He made alive together with him. In fact, you go again to the book of Hebrews. And there in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, it tells us that Jesus was manifested. One of the reasons why he was manifested, and that word just simply means that he came in the flesh. The reason Jesus was born and died is so that he might destroy him that had the power of death. And the Bible tells us that him is none other than the devil. So, Here's the idea. Don't get this idea, though, that before you were saved in Christ, that you were just sick and that you just needed to get well. No, before you were saved, Paul specifically says something about us here. He describes our spiritual state. He says you were dead. That means you needed a miracle. You needed a resurrection. You didn't just need a makeover. You needed new life. In other words, you were Dead. And Jesus does what for us? He destroyed the devil who had the power of death. And he does what for us? He gave us life. Not just any life. He gave us new life. He gives us resurrected life. He gives us eternal life. And so the victory that Christ won for you, first of all, delivers you from the power of death from the bondage of death. But number two, Jesus also delivered you from the record of debt. Not only did Jesus deliver you from death, he delivered you from a debt. The Bible says that Jesus did something very wonderful here in Colossians. And if you look again with me in verses 13 through 14, Paul says Jesus has forgiven us all our trespasses. In other words, all our sins. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So in Christ, we, get, we receive a blessing. Not only did Jesus deliver you from the bondage of death, but he delivered you from the bondage of your sin debt. And notice something about this debt. It is a debt that you can never repay. Never. You can live as long as you want. You can make as much money as you can try to make. And you can never make enough money to repay this debt. You can never live long enough to repay this debt. This is a debt that no man can repay. Now, Paul uses a phrase here to describe this debt. He says it's a record of debt that stood against us with this legal demand. So what does all that mean? Well, let's suppose you had committed a crime. And now you're indicted for that crime. There is a legal demand. In other words, that is, there's this written law. And the law says that if you have committed a crime, here's the penalty for that crime. There it is. It's written out. It is the legal demands. It is the written law. And this verse says that in relation to us in a spiritual sense, it stands against us. Why? Because we are the criminals who are guilty of what crime? Sin. We have fallen short of the glory of God. We are all guilty. 
Now, in Bible times and in Rome, if you committed a crime, you would be hauled into court and the indictment would be read. The trial would be decided by the judge and then your sentence would be written. This is the record of debt that now stands against you. In other words, it describes and it tells us what you have done, what the law says, and what the penalty says. And that's all on your record of debt that stands against you. And so then they would take you and they would put you in prison. And they would take your record of debt and they would nail it to your prison door. And there it is. If you want to know what this man's guilty of, all you have to do is go and read his record of debt that's nailed on the door. You want to know how long he has to serve? What his punishment is, it's right there. If you want to know what law he has transgressed, it's right there. It's the record of debt. And that man would stay in prison until when? Until his debt has been paid in full. And when he paid the, his debt in full, the jailer would come and then release him and take that bill off the door, that record of debt, and carry the man back to court. And, of course, at that moment, at that time in court, the record of debt would be given to the clerk. And the judge would say to the clerk, is this the man? Yes. Well, has he paid his penalty? The jailer or the clerk would say, yes, he has. And the judge would say to the clerk, then stamp it. And what would he stamp it with? Paid in full. And he would give it to him. And he would write on that record of debt, paid in full. And then should he be walking the streets and somebody say, I know you, I've seen you. I saw you on the latest blog and news, social media. Aren't you a guy that committed that crime? You shouldn't be walking the streets. You should be in jail. Arrest him. And all he has to do is say, no, 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 you can't arrest me. Why? Because I've already paid my debt. And he pulls it out of his pocket. He shows him, paid in full. And he says, you can't put me in double jeopardy. There's no Double jeopardy. This is marked, is paid in full. That's the record of debt that stood against us. But notice what Jesus did for us. He took our record of debt that we can never pay in full because we're in bondage to that sin that put us there. So we have no way of paying it. But Jesus does something for us. He takes that record of debt and he nailed it to the cross. All of those things, all of the debt, everything that we have done, were nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ. And in doing so, we know, in fact, we're going to see it in this series coming up, The Passion of Christ, where Jesus suffered for us. He bled for us. He died in our place. And it's as if Jesus went through the prison house of humanity and said, listen, I will take your sin record. I'll take your debt. I'll take Your record, I'll take your record. I'll take everyone's record. I'll do it all. Hang it on me. And of course, when he had finished paying our sin debt, on the cross, Jesus bowed his head. And what did he say? It is finished. In other words, paid in full. And so Jesus delivered us, not only from the bondage of death, but he delivers us from the record of our debt. A sin debt we can never repay. He nailed it to the cross, paid in full. But number three, Jesus also delivered you from the power of the devil. Colossians 2.15 says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in it. In other words, 
here's what happened on the cross of Jesus Christ. We see that Satan has been stripped. He has been shamed and he's been subdued by Christ. Satan has been stripped. In fact, Paul uses this word disarmed in reference to Satan. And that simply means to strip. Satan has been stripped. And when you say stripped of what? All of his pomp and circumstance, all of his majesty and glory that he enjoyed as the chief angel in heaven. Because prior to becoming Satan, he was Lucifer. He was the son of the morning star. But then he fell and became Satan. But Jesus on the cross ripped from him all of that pomp and circumstance, all of that glory and majesty that he wanted for himself when it says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in it. So Satan has been stripped, but he's also been shamed. In other words, Jesus ridiculed Satan. Satan has been shamefully dragged and paraded before the peoples of this world. And to think that Satan still wants you to see him as the one who is in control of your life. But his back has been broken. He is chained to the chariot and Jesus has made an open show of him. Satan doesn't want you to know that, but he has been stripped in shame nonetheless. And we're also told that he has now been subdued. That phrase triumphing over them in it. The them refers to the rulers and authorities, hell and all of its hosts. And so there's a triumph here that Jesus gives to us. Satan has been stripped. He has been shamed. He has been subdued on the cross. Do you realize what Jesus has done for you? He took care of the three greatest enemies in your life that brings you into bondage. He delivered you from death, from a debt that you can never repay, and from the devil himself. Jesus is the author of this victory. It is victory in Jesus Christ. But Paul also says something here about this victory that I want you to see. And it's not just that Jesus is the author of this victory, but Paul also says that you and I, we, we are the aroma of this victory. That's point number two. Go back to what Paul writes here in 2 Corinthians. Look at it in verse 14 where Paul says, But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Now, in that verse, don't miss two important words. Always and everywhere. You might want to underline those words. Because when Paul says always and everywhere, he's leaving nothing out. I mean, when you've said time and space, you've said it all. So when and where do we experience this victory that Jesus is the author of? Well, notice this in your notes. God is always giving us this victory in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's doing it where? Everywhere. In other words, there's no time that we as Christ followers are not to be victorious. Why? Because Paul says that God is always giving us the victory that Jesus won for us. In fact, later on in 1 Corinthians, or actually prior to when he writes these verses, 
Back up in 1 Corinthians 15, 57, Paul said the same thing when he says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says God gives us this victory everywhere. Now that means not in the sweet by and by that's one day going to come, but rather in the nasty now and now, right here where we live, on this earth. So it's not, this victory is not over there where you don't live. No, it's right here where you are living now. God is doing what? Always giving us this victory. He's always leading us in triumph. And you may be wondering, well, gosh, I look at my life and it doesn't seem to be too victorious. Where's, where's the triumph in my life? I don't feel very triumphant right now. So does this mean that we should expect smooth sailing until Jesus comes again? Of course not. No. Listen, if you didn't have any problems in your life, any suffering, difficulty, trials then God wouldn't need to lead you in triumph. After all, Paul wrote these words in the very midst of trouble. In fact, you back up in the same chapter here, chapter 2, to verses 12 and 13, look what Paul says. He says, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at Rest. And perhaps that's how some of you feel right now. You go back home, and even today, this afternoon, your spirit is not at rest. You'll wake up tomorrow morning, your spirit is not at rest. It is full of unrest because of the trouble you are experiencing. And Paul says to you, been there, done that. And he tells us why he wasn't at rest. My spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. In other words, Paul is saying, listen, I came to Troas to preach the gospel, but Titus wasn't there. In other words, he's saying, everything got messed up. My plans did not work out. My dreams here for what I wanted to do in the relation to preaching the gospel did not come to fruition. My plans didn't work out, so I had to change. I had to go over to Macedonia, but he says what? I'm still triumphant in Christ. You fast forward in the same book here to chapter 4, and if you think Paul didn't have any troubles, and perhaps even now you're thinking in your mind, it is ridiculous to think that God is always giving me this victory in Christ everywhere, then just listen to what Paul writes here in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 8 and 9. Paul says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. That's victory. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. That's God leading you in triumph. He says, we are not forsaken. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. Again, victory. Struck down, but not destroyed. That's triumph. You see, Paul knew all about trouble. He knew all about heartache. He knew all about pain, anguish, and trials. But he also knew victory in Jesus Christ. He said, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumph. Again, if there's no opposition in your life, if there's no difficulty in your life, if there's no trouble in your life, then what do you need to triumph from and for? But there is, isn't there? Because we don't live in a bubble. 
Life doesn't exist in a safe place all the time. Especially as a Christ follower. But that also means that there is the sweet smell of victory in Jesus Christ. God is always leading us in this victory that has been won for us. You say, well, what is the aroma of this victory? Notice this. This is beautiful. It's us. It's we who are Christ followers. My life in Jesus Christ. That is the aroma. It is the sweet smell of this victory. Paul says in verse 14, through us. That's a phenomenal thing for him to say. Through my life spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. In other words, the fragrance of this gospel spreads through me. That fragrance. And Paul repeats in verse 15, he says, For we are the very aroma, the sweet smell of victory to Christ. In other words, when we praise God, when we acknowledge Christ as our Savior, and we acknowledge God, that he's my God and Christ is my Savior and Lord. And we praise him in the midst of adversity and difficulty and trials and troubles. And then we stand in that victory that we have in Christ. And it's this, that our lives become this sweet-smelling aroma to God. Why? Because through our lives, and especially in those times of trouble, you know what we're doing when we continue to follow Christ, when we continue to persevere in Christ? Even when it's hard and we stand up for Christ and his gospel, we are giving testimony to the fact that Christ has done what? He's won a victory for me. He did it on the cross. It's a sure thing. He won this victory for me and I live in that victory. No, not perfectly. Not without trouble. But we live in victory. Listen, when you have heartache... And distress, when you have fears and tears, Paul wants you to live with the mindset that says, Hallelujah, thanks be to God who always leads us to triumph in Jesus Christ. Why? Satan has been defeated. He has been stripped. He has been shamed. He has been subdued. He sells a sinking ship. He rules a doomed domain. Jesus has won for us a sweet-smelling victory and never forget it. We are triumphant in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have victory in Jesus Christ. But Paul also says in verse 16, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. And so if Jesus' victory does not save you, Paul is saying it will condemn you in the end. And it will condemn you to a Christless eternity in a place that the Bible calls hell. And so every one of us here this morning, we are on one side of the cross or the other. It all depends on what side of the cross you're on. Because to one, it is a fragrance of from death to death, but to the other, it is a fragrance from life to life. And if you haven't already, you need, by faith, by trusting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, get on the victory side. Embrace the victory that Jesus has won for you on the cross. And that means embracing him, trusting him, relying on him for your salvation. Listen, 
on this Super Bowl Sunday. Listen, by all means, church, LifeBridge, leave here this morning and go home and gather together this evening with friends and family and in your grow groups. And yes, yell your lungs out and cheer for Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs. By all means, do so. But let us, who are Christ followers especially, let us now, let us first and foremost rejoice in Jesus Christ in the kingdom he won for us on the cross. Going back to the book of Hebrews, look what it says in chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. Again, it's talking about Christ and how better he is, how superior he is, how he is the goat. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent that is not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he, Jesus Christ, entered once for all into the holy places. But notice how, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. This is why Jesus is the greatest of all time. Listen, we are being told here that he is the once for all sacrifice for us who secured our eternal redemption so that we might receive the greatest kingdom in all the world, that is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. This is the victory that we all need. Listen, you need this victory. Because if you don't embrace this victory, if you don't trust this victory, then at the end of your life, it will be condemnation. In fact, the writer goes on in the very same chapter and tells us in verses 27, 28, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. In other words, Jesus is coming again. He came the first time to bear those sins for us on the cross. He was born to die. He secured the victory for us, but he's coming again. Not to deal with sin. Why? He already did that on the cross. He's resurrected now. He has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And at one at, at the Father's beckoning, Christ will come for those of us who claim to be Christ followers. But not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Is that you? Is that you? The Lord's Supper which we're going to participate in in just a few moments here, is a reminder to us, the body of Christ, of this very sweet-smelling victory. Now, chances are probably most of you, if not all of you, are going to eat a lot as you watch the Chiefs play tonight. There's going to be food involved in your Chiefs party. In fact, you realize as a nation... We eat more food on Super Bowl Sunday than any other day of the year except what holiday, you think? Thanksgiving. According to the National Chicken Council, you didn't realize there was such one, did you? More than 1.3 billion chicken wings will be eaten today. 
And if you're not eating wings, you're probably eating pizza. Americans today will order over 12.5 million pizzas from Domino's and Pizza Hut alone. After wings and pizza, potato chips are the most popular snack, Super Bowl snack. With, get this, 11.2 million pounds of potato chips and 8.2 million pounds of tortilla chips will be dipped and munched on throughout the course of the Super Bowl. And of course, once the Super Bowl is over, as you might imagine, antacid cells increase 20% on Monday. <laughs> with, with, with around 1.5 million Americans calling in sick to work tomorrow. <laughs> so here's what I say to you as your pastor. Listen, church, snack wisely, my friends, as you watch the Super Bowl. But more importantly... More importantly, as your pastor, I say, let us, we here who are Christ followers through our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, let us come to the Lord's table here this morning and let us feast spiritually. Because as we come to the table, let us, what we are doing, we are rejoicing in Jesus Christ, and specifically the victory that he won for us on the cross. And so as we come, let us, let us remember his sacrifice as we eat the bread, which represents his broken body, and as we drink this juice representing his shed blood. With your heads bowed. And as we pause here for a moment before we partake, Again, I encourage you, would you open your heart, would you direct your thoughts to Jesus Christ and to what he has done for you on the cross? And if you need to, would you take time, a few minutes here, to pray to the Lord and confess any sin that has not been confessed, but do so knowing that Christ wants to forgive you. Why? Because he died on the cross for those sins. And so would you make yourself ready to participate? Would you give a prayer of thankfulness and gratitude? Heavenly Father, thank you for the victory that we have in Christ Jesus. Thank you for Christ's sacrifice on the cross so that we might be redeemed from sin and death and that we might receive an eternal kingdom that cannot be shaken. And so, Heavenly Father, we also ask that you would give us the grace, the power to live daily in this victory that's already been won for us, a victory that is a sweet-smelling aroma to you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning, perhaps you're visiting, maybe this is your first time, maybe you've been attending for a few weeks or a few months. And how we participate in communion here at LifeBridge, you'll see four tables uh, in the four corners of the church. We don't believe you necessarily have to be a member here at our church, but we do believe that communion, otherwise known as the Lord's Supper, is reserved for those who profess Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. You've placed your faith and trust in him. And you've identified with Jesus Christ in baptism. And you're committed to his body How? By being committed to his local body in membership. And so if that describes you here this morning, 
man, we invite you to come and participate in communion. If you're not yet a Christ follower, that is, you have yet to confess Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, then, then listen, we invite you to watch. Watch with open eyes, open hearts, and see what we as a church do as we come and line up and as we take the, the, the symbols here, the bread and the juice, and we take them back to our seats and we take them because those symbols represent the grace of God, his love for you through the death of his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross and obviously through his resurrection. And because he has risen again, we have a hope in Christ that this is not just the only world that we know, but there is a kingdom beyond chief's kingdom that is eternal that we are receiving through victory in Jesus Christ. And so if this is you and if you're ready to participate, Zach's going to play the music, and as he begins to, we invite you to come at your, uh, when the time is right for you and to line up and take it back. Again, Lord, we thank you so much. Oh, how we thank you for the victory we have in you. In your name we pray. Amen.